Ellen on politics. Democratic socialism means that we must create an economy that works for all, not just the very wealthy. is going to be given a new opportunity by events in the United States. Will the left be able to take advantage of the moment? The music was Can't Heat, Let's Work Together, and the voices were those of Bernie Sanders and Michael Harrington. When Bernie Sanders launched his first presidential campaign in 2015, he soon became acknowledged as a national spokesperson for democratic socialism in the United States, a role that hadn't been filled since the death of Michael Harrington in 1989. Before that, there were a succession of people filling that role, from Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party of America in the early decades of the 20th century, to Norman Thomas, who took on the role in the mid-decades of the 20th century, when the party was already in decline, to Michael Harrington, who lived through the breakup of the Socialist Party of America, but became the leader and a co-founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is not a political party, but is an organization that tries to work within the Democratic Party, a role that Bernie Sanders is now filling. Now, Democratic Socialists of America has always been a small organization, but Harrington still had a national platform by virtue of the fact that he was a best-selling author, a tireless organizer, and a very popular speaker in his day. But in the 25 years between Harrington and Sanders, there wasn't anybody to really raise the uh, perspective of democratic socialists in our national political conversation. In fact, any references to socialism usually had to do with the communist system, such as those in the USSR, China, Cuba, and the like. So when Sanders began campaigning as a professed democratic socialist, and the popularity of his campaign unexpectedly be was a booming phenomenon, people began to ask the question, what is democratic socialism? What did it mean for Bernie Sanders? What does it have to do with the socialism of the past or socialisms around the world? Is it really a form of socialism or is it more just a revival of the kind of New Deal liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt, who emphatically did not consider himself a socialist and said that what he was trying to do is stop socialism in the United States and save the capitalists from themselves. So what does it mean, democratic socialism? What does it mean for today in the United States? And what does it mean if this movement is to be successful going forward? I want to tackle some of those questions in today's show, not by giving you my you know, top of the mountain definition of democratic socialism, but looking more into the history of democratic socialism from the early years of socialism through its incorporation as the platform of the early parties, political parties of socialists, to its uh, successes in the years after World War II, and then the obstacles and challenges it encountered since the 1990s, similar to liberalism here in the United States during that period. So my first segment following this is going to be about that history. And then in the final segment of the show, I'll try to draw some lessons from that history in order to inform the current movement of democratic socialism in the United States about things to keep in mind, things to discuss, things to consider in order to advance the program forward, whatever that program might happen to be. So stay tuned.
it amusing when I sometimes hear people saying or implying that socialism is somehow a foreign doctrine to the United States of America or anti-American in some form because really the American Revolution and the ideals of the revolution were one of the currents that fed into the development of socialism in the 1800s. How so? Well as I've stated in previous programs ideals like self-government, um, human equality, citizens' rights, personal freedom, people began to see that these could be extended from the political realm into the economic realm. And early on, Thomas Paine started to do this right after the American Revolution, talking about a more equal economy. You could see this even more so in France with the French Revolution, which followed just on the heels of the success of the American Revolution and inspired people to take up arms against the king. Some of the revolutionaries wanted to push beyond the political sphere into the economic sphere and make sure there is rights and freedom and self-government in the economic order. So one of the currents feeding into the uh, development of socialism was this sense of human rights that came out of the Republican tradition. And I'm not referring to the Republican Party here. I'm referring to what Republicanism meant early on, which was getting rid of kings and aristocrats and replacing it with rule by the people, rule accountable to the people through representative government. The other two currents that fit into this were number one, intellectuals observing the development of early capitalism and both the value of that and the problems with it, and the workers movement of working people trying to protect themselves and improve their situation under the new capitalist order. The intellectuals were people like Robert Owen, who was a Welsh businessman, and he saw, like others did in France, for example, that capitalism was helping to uh, create new wealth and more productivity by bringing people together in an organized form to work rather than having people do individualized labor as in running a farm or working as an independent craftsman bringing them together in one place. This is what they meant by socialization, that work was becoming socialized. It was becoming organized. They were called utopian socialists later on by Marx and Engels because they thought they didn't really, these early socialists didn't really have a realistic idea of how to go about making change in our society, in our societies of the time. What the utopians wanted to do shouldn't use the word utopian because they wouldn't use it for themselves. It's kind of pejorative, but they would create grand plans for how to reorganize society and they would try to find wealthy or powerful benefactors to institute them. What they actually found was that the only ones interests who had an interest in changing the way things were developing were the working people themselves. So they developed the following among working people. And in fact, Robert Owen, who I just mentioned, uh, was an inspiration for the workers and consumers co-op movement, which is still in existence today. In the middle of the 1800s, there was a movement towards supporting workers' movements and away from the idea that big plans uh, of how to reorganize society were what was important. Here, the idea was that workers were already mobilized to create unions and fight for the rights within work organizations, and also to seek the franchise 
uh, in places where there was already representative government, like in the United States and England. The socialists of the middle of that century were people like Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, but there were others as well because Marx and Engels were just one among many uh, leading activists who had growing followings, and in fact, they were not the foremost at all at that time. But the general idea was let's help develop the workers' movement and move from organizing workers to extending the franchise to workers to creating working people's parties, socialist parties. So this was the early form of democratic socialism. The plan, the strategy was to form socialist parties with the workers' movement as the driving force behind it, gain power, and then develop socialism out of that, develop a new form of economy from the needs and the experiences of workers struggling toward that. So do away with the grand plan and come in with the strategy of just getting workers more organized and helping them move forward. That may sound strange to people who think of Karl Marx as somebody who had a master plan and was looking for a, a violent revolution to institute it, but that's a misunderstanding of Marx because he was very reticent to talk about what the final form of socialism would actually look like. And his revolutionary instincts were really overturning monarchies and aristocracies where you couldn't do that with the vote. But in places where the vote and representative government were already in place, they were on board with this plan of organizing workers and creating socialist parties to contest for power. Over the uh, course of the end of the 1800s, towards the turn of the century, a number of socialist parties developed in European countries, as well as Australia. And in Germany, in fact, by the turn of the century, they had the largest socialist, democratic socialist party in the world, and the Social Democrats of Germany, which was the socialist party there, was the largest party in Germany. But they didn't have much power because um, the scheme of representation which was set in place in the 1870s didn't give equal vote to everybody. It was a class-based system. So even though the socialists were able to elect a lot of people, uh, get a lot of votes, had a lot of members, uh, they still were not able to gain power. That changed after World War I. Two things really came out of World War I. One is the Russian Revolution, which is kind of a digression here, but Lenin, like the other Russian revolutionaries, started out as democratic socialists. They saw that the way forward was to uh, create a legislative body or to take the one that was already existing and give it real power in order to move the revolution forward. It was actually mutiny by soldiers and sailors and then workers joining in that created the revolution. It wasn't any kind of uh, party that tried to implement that. Uh, but Lenin was in a difficult place because Russia was not a capitalist country, it was still feudal. Uh, there was, they were still at war with Germany and there was a civil war going on with counter-revolutionary forces. So Lenin, who be, took power, uh, led it in a different direction, which led to the Russian uh, communist system that we're familiar with now from history. Going back to Germany, though, the outcome of World War I was a revolution there as well as in, in 1918 and they created a new constitution that actually gave power to their legislative body. And since the democratic socialists, that is the social democrats of Germany, uh, were the largest party, they gained power. 
Now, the problem was they hadn't given much thought to what socialism was supposed to look like after they gained power. And although during the 1920s, when the economy was doing fairly well, uh, they were able to maintain support, in the 1930s with the Great Depression, they were not doing well at all. They, they lost voters because voters wanted immediate benefits and they were struggling. And the socialists had no big plan for how to manage a capitalist economy, which they still had. Uh, they didn't try to institute socialism. They didn't really know what that would look like. There's long debate between doing it gradually or doing it all at once, even though they didn't know all at once towards what. This led to their losing voters and the uh, Nazis taking power, Hitler coming to power, and pretty much it was a disaster for that country and for the rest of the world. Um, but an experience out of the Depression was experimentation with ways to actually manage a capitalist economy that served the values that socialists had, like providing for the working people and giving them a little more power in the government, a lot more power in the government, really. And that was what's called Keynesian theory, which started be developing in Sweden, just out of the necessity. The government would spend more to create employment. And in the United States, Franklin Roosevelt saw the value of some of this as well. And especially during World War II, the spending on the military in the United States proved that Keynesian theory could work to revive the economy and to the Great Depression in the United States. Now, when I say Keynesian, I'm referring to John Maynard Keynes, who was an English economist and a socialist who developed a theory explaining how these types of actions could actually help manage capitalism better. So after World War II, a number of socialist uh, parties, uh, democratic socialist parties, came to power in different European countries at one time or another. And they were able to use Keynesian policy to manage capitalism, to maintain good levels of employment and to extend a lot of social welfare benefits to working people. It seemed good for a while, but you ran into the 1970s, there was a major crisis. I should also mention in the 1960s, you had the new left, which was disillusioned with bureaucracy in general, both the bureaucratic state socialism of the USSR and the bureaucracies surrounding social democratic parties in Europe and wanted greater individual freedom and a greater say in their life. But the, the 60s movement toward a new left was crushed by repression in the 1970s. And then there was an economic crisis, which uh, conservatives were successful in attributing to the social welfare state and the spending and the government interference in the economy. What actually happened is very complex, but a key element of it is that after World War II, the United States dominated the world economy and the U.S. dollar was the primary currency. As other countries began to recover economically, like Germany, France, and Japan, England, they recovered from the war. They began to rebuild their economy. The United States was under stress with more competition. It put the dollar's value under question, and it led to um, a lot of unemployment. And employers and conservatives in general, who had been trying to find ways to overcome the success of this social welfare state, um, did an ideological a war on those old ideas and said what we need instead is to return to conservative values like less taxes, less government spending, um, and you know the whole drill. This is neoliberalism. This is the 
uh, austerity policies of constricting the rights of unions, constricting social welfare spending, reducing taxes, and businesses um, in a global economy now, because this was really what happened with the revival of European and Japanese economies, was the economy became even more global than it had been in the past. Uh, a system of trade that uh, benefited investors over workers and the movement of uh, capital from places of high wages to places of low wages. Uh, the United States lost a lot of jobs in that process and trade wars that were being asseverated by international finance. Speculators who saw that any country that tried to revive a social welfare state or the old policies uh, would have pressure on its currency and speculators would dump that currency and go to other currencies, which put a lot of stress in that country to return to the international order in order to engage in international trade and also get lending from international institutions when they needed it. So this whole regime of neoliberalism started around the 1980s. Parties that had been center-left, social democratic, or in the United States, the Democrats, uh, moved toward the center, the so-called center, which really meant they moved back to raw capitalism. And that's where we've been ever since, up until very recently. I think there's a number of lessons that can be learned from that history, and I'm going to try to draw them out a little more clearly in this final segment coming up. After that whirlwind tour of the history of democratic socialism, I want to now draw some lessons from that history. First, I want to acknowledge the positive achievements of democratic socialism, two in particular. The first one is in actually creating democratic republics around the world. What was previously a feudal order, where very few people held the power and wealth, they contributed, democratic socialists contributed to creating systems of government that were responsive to the people and then extended voting rights to very ordinary citizens. So the democratization of politics was a true achievement that democratic socialists had a large hand in creating. Second, they actually improved life for people within their countries. I'm thinking in particular of social welfare programs like old age pensions, universal health care, minimum wage laws, legalizing unions, uh, maximum hour laws, family allowances, unemployment insurance, all these types of things help make life better for people and were a true contribution to the amelioration of human suffering. Now, on the other hand, there were in the history of uh, democratic socialism and kind of highlighted some of the dilemmas that they faced that are still with us today and are worth pointing out. I'm going to focus on three of them. The first one is that there is a contradiction in this strategy from the start, which acknowledged the energy and the agency of working people in the early workers movement and the channeling of that into political activity dissipated some of that energy rather than creating a new society. Whereas you started out with workers in high engagement, high risk activities like, uh, and, and these things were all illegal at the time, things like labor actions, strikes, takeovers, takeovers of factories, forming unions and trying to force management to bargain with you. All these things were things that you had to get very engaged with and take some risks for. 
creating a sense of identification and ownership with the movement. And also you could see when you were successful, direct results in bettering your own life, as well as the lives of people that you were in association with. Now, when you move that toward a political direction, there could be high energy and creating political parties, especially when they're illegal. But once they got established, the role of working people became more and more relegated to that of voting to get people into office or to keep them in office. Now, voting, even engaging in election campaigns, is not that much of a high engagement, high risk activity. Doesn't create the same kind of sense of ownership as the previous types of actions did. And it, it tends to focus more on politics rather than on economic circumstances. And when you actually uh, succeed in electing somebody, the benefits to your own life are rather indirect. So hard to see them. So that movement from direct action to political action had its costs. It also created another dilemma which is that if you start out as a critic of the political economic system and see the need for fundamental change, once you accept a role of power within that system, you're going to have a lot of pressures to engage in reformism rather than fundamental change. Now, this happens because in order to get enough votes to get into office, you're going to have to extend be beyond the people who are your diehard supporters and true believers to people that put a greater premium on stability and order than on big change. Uh, so you got to reach out to voters who are not necessarily highly committed to your cause. And once in office to get anything done, you got to build coalitions with other parties. That means that your position as a spokesperson for fundamental change is compromised to say the least. You're not very credible when you're spending your time in office trying to make small reform changes. And it also changes your own perspective, I think where you begin to get so focused on trying to make small changes and improvements in people's life that you start to accept that maybe it's possible that this will just make things good enough that big change is not going to be as necessary or can you can somehow gradually get to the point where the more fundamental change happens looking toward it in some distant future and the present will will things will get better and better i think the tendency to think like that manifests when there's a major economic crisis which a critic of a political economic system like capitalism would generally acknowledge, those kind of crises tend to catch politicians by surprise, even democratic socialist politicians. I'm thinking in particular of the Great Depression, how that surprised people, and the um, financial crisis of the 1970s. Both of these caught folks off guard who democratic socialists, as well as other people who started to think that, well, this capitalist system could be gradually changed and made better and better. Um, and kind of the big crises were behind us. We had fixed those things, which we hadn't. And I, I'm sure we still haven't. So the tendency is to move towards reformism and start to neglect the idea that there's fundamental change necessary. It also makes it hard for you to be a credible spokesperson for fundamental change when you're a part of the system. Now, on the other hand, if you try to stay outside the system, there's a cost to that as well, which is that you're very vulnerable to repression, as we've seen over and over. In fact, uh, this is demonstrated in the uh, just post World War One, when Democratic Socialist Party took power in the interest of trying to create more social stability, they actually persecuted strikers and anarchists who were trying to move for more uh, 
radical change through direct actions. They used the military to suppress strikes, which put them in a position that was uh, very much against fundamental change and also um, kind of betrayed their, their own origins. Finally, we have the problem that politics is organized within nation states, but it's dealing with problems of capitalism that are international in scope. This has been true from early on in capitalist history, where the imperative to continued growth and continued profit meant that they had to go beyond the borders of their own nation to seek uh, labor and raw materials and markets in other places of the world. Uh, this is on steroids today. We have a hyper-globalized world, and that means that everything that we do on a national scale might conflict with what's best for the rest of the world. Now, let me try to make that a little more clear. You're expected as a politician in a national government to put the interest of your own people, your own nation first, and to kind of neglect when that's uh, compromising the what's happening to people in other parts of the world. You want to make sure you maintain our way of life here, that's what you're expected to do, and you'll lose political support if you don't by saying we got to get off fossil fuels because people in other countries are experiencing drought and uh, their islands are sinking into the ocean, or by saying that we have to create an international economic system that benefits other countries but may require sacrifices on our part. Those kind of things are not popular to say, and it's a dilemma for people in a national office in a position within a national government to make the case for that without losing a lot of support. So again, the pressure is on national focus rather than international. And also, the creation of international institutions for socialists is an imperative that's been always difficult to achieve. Capitalists seem to have been, uh, done this with relative ease to create international systems of finance both the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II and now uh, using uh, organizations like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund to their advantage, where socialists have always become uh, divided over how to do this. How do you create an international uh, system that's fair to everybody uh, when you're kind of embedded within a national political system? All right, so those are three dilemmas that uh, democratic socialists have faced across history and are still facing today. What I want to do in a future program is look at a somewhat different perspective of libertarian socialists. And if you've been following this program, you know I identify more as a libertarian socialist, which is a bit different of a tradition from that of democratic socialism. Not that it's anti-democratic, but it has um, some different takes on these different issues. Uh, so I'll do that in a future program. In the meantime, I again welcome your comments, corrections, um, objections, um, <laughs> barbs and uh, uh, plaudits uh, in, in the comment section of the Allen on Politics YouTube channel or the Allen on Politics Facebook page. Uh, I welcome hearing from you is what I'm saying. And I hope you come back to the next show and I hear from you again. So until then, bye.